Father, pray now that you would sanctify these human words by your Spirit. Spirit, come and speak to us and direct our eyes to Jesus once again. Lord, in your mercy, in Christ's name, amen. Well, if you've been here at the five o'clock within the past few weeks, you know that we are taking several weeks to reflect on portions of Matthew's gospel. We are currently in this section that many people refer to, it's chapters five through seven in Matthew, that many people refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, A couple weeks ago, Matt opened the Sermon on the Mount with his Sermon on the Beatitudes, and then last week, of course, if you were here, Andrew preached on the rest of chapter 5, a pretty lengthy passage um, where Jesus emphasizes and upholds the Old Testament and the law, and tonight we come into chapter 6, so tonight our assignment is to meditate on the words of Jesus found here in chapter 6, which we just heard. Now, To be honest, I don't really know how I'm supposed to effectively tease out all this in 20 minutes, so while I have the floor, I thought I would go ahead and take an hour with you. Is that okay with everyone? All right, bad joke, bad joke. Um, But really, seriously, since I don't have much time for these 18 verses, sadly for me, no, no Taylor Swift lyric tonight, no cool New York Times article, we have to be chop chop. So into the text we go. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, um, or please take a look at your bulletin, please follow along with me as we preach through Matthew 6. Jesus today wants to talk to us about our religious activity. But it's important, before we dive specifically into verse 1, it's important that I take a few minutes just to preface this. It's important... um, because we can so easily isolate the Sermon on the Mount and read it improperly. We need to make sure that we read Scripture Christianly. And that means we have to read Scripture, even the Sermon on the Mount, in relation to the whole story of the Bible. Now, one of the things I get to do uh, as a college pastor, one of the fun things I get to do, is to sit down every week with some college students and study the Bible say, Mark's Gospel, for example. Now, if you were to ask my friend Reed what I ask him at the beginning of every one of our times together, he will say, I always ask this, what is the context of the passage? So, for tonight, what is the context of the Sermon on the Mount? Now, the whole Sermon on the Mount comes in the middle of a fuller point that Matthew is trying to make in his gospel account. There's already a game in play. So the Sermon on the Mount is sort of like halftime. It's not exactly like Kendrick Lamar's halftime show, but hopefully you get the point. Or if, you, if you're a baseball fan, it's sort of like seventh inning stretch. Um, stuff has already happened, and there's still more to come. So, let's back up. If we've been reading Matthew, what's happened so far? In Matthew 1, when the angel comes to Joseph, the angel says this, You are going to call Mary's baby Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. The whole point of Jesus is salvation, is rescue. Then in chapter 3, Matthew goes along, and he will use John the Baptist's preaching to make sure 
we know that Jesus has come to do something new. He has come to bring a whole new start. He has come to bring an end, excuse me, he has come to bring an end to the old order of things. Or in the language of Matthew, he's come to bring about repentance. So this person named Jesus who has come to save his people, who has come to start something totally new, who is this Jesus? Matthew lets us know that he is God himself. He has come to us in the flesh. He is called the Son of God. And if we know our Old Testaments, we know that when Matthew says that he's the Son of God, we know that at least means he is God's true king, and he is the true Israel. So unlike all of the Old Testament, when all of the kings and when all of Israel was faithless, this one, this person named Jesus, he is at last the faithful one from God. He is the king of a totally new kingdom. And this kingdom is God's kingdom, which is why Matthew will spend so much time talking about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. That is, by the way, when you then go into chapter 4, why Matthew lets us know that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. He was tempted just as Israel was tempted, but instead, unlike Israel, Jesus is faithful. When you then skip forward to the end of chapter 4, we're told that Jesus goes throughout all of the region of Galilee, and there he is teaching and proclaiming the gospel of his new kingdom, and he is healing every disease and affliction. So, if we're following along in Matthew, if we're really paying attention, at this point we should have some questions. So we should be asking ourselves, if God's kingdom is in fact breaking in by and through this person named Jesus, where is the kingdom? And what exactly is the nature of this kingdom, since I don't really see any grand political things happening? So it's here at this point, just after Matthew has let us know that Jesus has spent time proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, it's here when we should be asking these questions It's here that Matthew puts in the Sermon on the Mount so we get a picture, a taste of what this kingdom is. We get the Sermon on the Mount. Now let me say a few other introductory remarks, if I may. What the Sermon on the Mount is not. The Sermon on the Mount is not Jesus' class on religious rules or ethics. Don't mistake me, Jesus wants to talk to us about how we live. But to simply read the Sermon on the Mount and think that we can just go roll up our sleeves and get to work, it's to miss the entire point. So first, it's not a class on religious rules or ethics. But two, it's also not a list of impossible standards that we can simply ignore. Because if we go down that route, that's really just a way of self-justifying our actions and our motives. The very, the very thing Jesus wants to address in our lives. He wants to show us how radically new his kingdom is. But thirdly, we should also say the Sermon on the Mount is not a set of guidelines for my own private spirituality or therapy. It's not me just trying to get a connection with God better. Jesus has not come in to just bring in a new religion or a therapeutic spirituality. His kingdom is drastically more radical and new. 
Now, the reason I'm taking so much time to preface and introduce and say all these things is because it is so tempting for us as American Christians to put Jesus in the back seat so that we can now become our own saviors. The American church is always tempted to be Christless as we carry on with church, forgetting that Jesus is the one at the very center of this kingdom. You've heard me say so many times before, so let me repeat it again. Christianity is not ethics or spirituality or some sort of private therapy. And I say this not to be abstract or theoretical. I say this with pastoral concern. I hope no one at the Advent talks about Christianity in that way in their discussions around town. Without the gospel, there is no Christianity. Without the good news, there is no Christianity. And what is the gospel? The gospel is the public announcement that God has raised Jesus from the dead. God has raised Jesus from the dead 2,000 years ago in history. You realize that if tomorrow an archaeologist finds Jesus' bones, and that's actually found to be true, I'm not going to be here next week, and I'm headed to Vegas. You and I should not be here next week studying the Bible if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. That is where our faith is, what God has done in history in Jesus Christ. So let's be so very clear about what we believe as Christians. The Bible is not a book And the Sermon on the Mount is not either. It's not a book of religious teaching or an instruction manual for religion or spirituality that our dead king has left us with. Jesus is not the bringer of a new religion. He is not our life coach. He has not come to simply bring us godly rules to follow. He has not even come to give us a religious pep talk. We are in no way building a bridge back to God. The situation is way more drastic than that. You and I are like France under Hitler, and we need a rescuer from the outside to come in and save us. Jesus' kingdom is something radically new, and it is so different, it is not anything that you and I could ever build or work toward. So now having said all that, God's grace in Jesus Christ changes everything. Now remember, in the context, we're asking some questions about this kingdom. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is now giving his disciples some insight into what the kingdom of heaven looks like in very down-to-earth terms. It's a portrait of the kind of life for those who are now following Jesus, living in anticipation of God's kingdom even when it's countercultural. It's a challenge for us together to live in this new light that Jesus is bringing, even when it means being costly, being an alternative society to the ways of the world. And now here in chapter 6, Jesus is calling even our religion and our piety into question. Jesus wants us to know that because no part of our lives is left untouched by sin, he will leave no part of our lives without grace. Jesus has come to make all things new, and that includes overhauling even our best religious works. 
So now the passage. Looking at verse 1, Jesus sums up his whole point here. He basically says, don't use religion to draw attention to yourself. Don't use religious activity to get others just to look at you. In other words, if we flip it in a positive light, disciples of Jesus recognize that their true reward is much greater and more satisfying than simply promoting themselves. Now that Jesus has brought us into relationship with his Father, it's now from this starting point with our Father that we do things. If you think of any person or relationship in your life, you do things for them not because you have to, but because of an overflow of love in that relationship, not from a place of trying to get for yourself. And actually, you and I know that in our relationships, when we try to do things for other people to simply get for us, we know the relationship quickly breaks down, doesn't it? What Jesus is saying then is this. If you think that religious activity in my kingdom is about seeking your own glory, you don't yet understand how radically new this kingdom of mine is. Religious activity is not about gaining points in your community. It is not about getting recognition from other people for yourself. And it makes sense why Jesus would stop here to address these issues. Because in first century Judaism... Well, it's a very religious culture. And it was easy to use religion to gain, um, to gain attention from other people by doing flamboyant, ostentatious religious acts. And as I was thinking about this, I was actually quite surprised to realize that um, Matthew 6 is actually quite similar to, that, that cultural situation is quite similar to our day. Even here in Birmingham, we have, this may be dying somewhat, but we have a very pervasive religious culture where we can use religious acts to gain a standing in our society. Church is often treated like being a member of a sorority or a fraternity. This may change, but Birmingham culture tempts us to use the church and religion in order to move up the ladder. Or we could even do this totally in a non-Christian way, in a secular way of shouting on Twitter or Instagram or, or wherever, using our platforms to shout how much we value certain things. But Jesus says, don't do that. Because you as my disciples, you're starting from a totally different place. Because if you do that, if you promote yourself, that's using religion for the wrong thing. It's using religion for yourself, not for others, and that's not the point of my kingdom. My kingdom is not, says Jesus, about self-advancement. It's about being relationship with your Father, the Father that I have introduced you to, says Jesus. So, that means your religion, your activity, your praying, your fasting, this is characterized by self-forgetfulness. Self-forgetfulness. So then Jesus just simply goes down, and he uses three examples of common religious activity in his day. So he talks about giving to the needy, praying, fasting, and you may have noticed that Jesus kind of repeats himself. That's because he does. For all three examples, he teaches the same basic principle in the same way. 
So what I thought I would do, rather than repeating myself three times, which I know you would not love, um, what I thought I would do is we could have a two-step dance here. So first, let's just consider all of them together in summary. So first, disciples of Jesus, Jesus wants us to know that us as his disciples, we are to be different even in our religious practice. So Andrew made the point last week that the Bible and the Old Testament helps us to realize that the people of God are called to be different. And that's what Jesus is showing us here. If you look in your Bible or in your handout in verse 2 and verse 5 and verse 16, Jesus gives the same basic warning. He says, verse 2, about the hypocrites. The hypocrites... Well, they do that, that they may be praised by others. That's verse 2. Verse 5, they pray that they may be seen by others. And he says the same thing in verse 16. And Jesus basically says, when you as my disciples do these things, don't do them like the hypocrites because they're doing it for the wrong thing to be recognized. And this word for hypocrite, what's basically someone who's an actor, it's from the theater. So this person that Jesus is pointing out, this hypocrite, it's someone who basically is play-acting. And ultimately, they're just using this religious activity for a facade to get what they really want. So they've deceived themselves, and they've deceived others, and they're looking as if they're doing things for God and for others, but ultimately what they're doing is they're trying to get attention from others. They want a pat on the back. They want recognition. And so Jesus says each and every time, Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. The people who simply give in order to promote themselves, they've settled for something so small, just to be acknowledged by others, just to get applause and to recognition, to get recognition. But Jesus says, you're my disciples and you have something so much more, so don't do that. Don't do that as my disciples because my kingdom It's not about self-promotion. So when you pray, when you fast, when you give to others, you're starting from something totally different. You're starting from a relationship with your Father. And the best word, I think, to summarize all of this is disciples of Jesus are marked by self-forgetfulness. We are self-forgetful. This is what Jesus calls us to be, self-forgetful people of God. We are to be content in knowing Jesus' Father as our Father and living in that love, living in that relationship. But then Jesus, I want to highlight something else, when Jesus talks about rewards here for his disciples. So when Jesus mentions the rewards part, is he talking about like a Starbucks rewards card or the octane, you know, octane in Homewood, when you go in and buy coffee, you get a punch? Is he talking about you get a, you know, a religious punch card where you can pay your dues and then you get a free cup of coffee or you get, you get some religious points? Um, no, because Jesus, Jesus is showing us that we are to be living lives of self-forgetfulness. So if we're still in this mode of thinking about getting points and earning, we've not yet understood Jesus' kingdom The world's ways are about using religion to get for myself, me, myself, and I. But Jesus says, 
don't do that because your reward is getting God as your father. You get God in Christianity. You get God. You don't get a pat on the back. 1 Peter 3.18 says this exactly. For Christ suffered once for sins that he might bring us to God. So it's rewarding for you to simply do things out of that relationship, not to be using fasting or praying or whatever other religious activity to simply get. You as Christians are to be living lives of self-forgetfulness. So we've talked about how we as disciples are to live lives that are different from the ways of the world, but two, Jesus spends a little bit of time, a little bit of extra time talking about prayer. This is verses 7 through 15. So we've already summarized what Jesus basically says in this whole passage, but with his comments on prayer, as you noticed, he spends a little bit more time. And I thought it would be good to just highlight this because you and I are at the Advent, and so we're in a church where we pray the Lord's Prayer together every Sunday. And I also think it's important because if you're like me, when I get asked to pray, I get kind of nervous. And sometimes, quite frankly, I don't know what to pray. I don't know what to pray or I don't know how to pray, and so I feel this pressure and nerves about praying. And so it's so easy for me to use fancy words in order to just get recognition. But, says Jesus, don't do that. Remember, he has just told us to pray. Pray in light of being self-forgetful people because we now already have a relationship with God as our Father. So he says in verse 7, if you're looking, when you pray... Don't add on all these fancy, empty words like the pagans do because they think they impress their gods with their words. But, Jesus says, you are my disciples and you are in relationship with God as your Father. He knows you so well that it's not like you have to do a great job of telling him the morning news. You don't have to impress him with your words. It's not like the God who has created you and is now rescuing you from sin and death. It's not like he needs to be coaxed by some fancy, magical, theological word. No, you personally know this God as your Father. You know the Creator, the Lord of heaven and earth as your Father, and now call upon him as our Father. And you can converse with him in this place of freedom and rest, not from a place of trying to earn or get or impress. So Jesus says, pray like this. And then he gives us the Lord's Prayer, which you and I pray together every Sunday. Now, I wish I had time, but I don't. I wish I had time to walk through each line of the Lord's Prayer. Um, So since I don't, what I thought I would say is, If you're interested in reading more about this, reading more about the Lord's Prayer, there are two excellent books on prayer. One is by J.I. Packer. Um, J.I. Packer's book is called Praying the Lord's Prayer, or Tim Keller has a book called Prayer, and he talks about the Lord's Prayer. So these are helpful books if you want to reflect, um, reflect later on about the prayer that you and I pray together every Sunday. I will say this, though. Notice how Instead of praying something elaborate, what Jesus shows us to do, he shows us to pray just something so very simple. If you look at each line, it's so simple and yet it's so comprehensive. 
um, if you just sort of start skimming at verse 9, um, we go to our Father. That word in there, the hour, is so important. Jesus has come to bring us a relationship with our Father. He's not just a distant God. He is now our Father. And we can go to our Father longing, asking Him, begging Him for Him to bring in His kingdom in full. And yet He's not just, our Father is not just concerned about the huge things of the world. He's also concerned about our daily lives. And so we can go to Him each and every day, praying for the forgiveness of our daily sins, our daily needs. And this, says Jesus, this is what is to characterize your praying. It's not about being showy. It's just being simple and going and conversing with your Father. And then Jesus ends in verse 14. He ends that little section about praying. He ends with a comment about forgiveness. And it makes sense, doesn't it? If we together are a community of forgiven sinners who regularly ask our Father to forgive us, then doesn't it make sense that when people wrong us, we should easily extend forgiveness to them? Never are you more like your Father when you forgive. That is what Jesus wants to show us. Well, I wish I could say so much more, but um, let me close with this. Jesus, Jesus is calling us tonight to live lives of self-forgetfulness. He wants us to live different from the ways of the world. Lives where we recognize that our true reward is with God, not in getting a pat on the back from other people. Lives of self-forgetfulness. But what if you've been paying attention? What if you've been listening to Matthew? What if you've been listening to the sermon and you realize that you haven't, even as a Christian, been all that self-forgetful? What about the time you gave money or the time that you prayed in order to just be noticed? Or what about the person that you cannot seem to forgive? What if you've not been self-forgetful but self-consumed even in your religious activity? Well, there's good news for you. Self-forgetful you may be, unforgiving you may be, but thank God that God has shown his love towards sinners. He has come into the world to save sinners. He died for you and he was raised for you. And you and I may not be in the business naturally of giving and being self-forgetful and being forgiving, but the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ he is in the business of forgiving. And God shows his love to you in that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. So now that you have been shown such extravagant grace and love, now forget about yourself and go serve others and show that same extravagant grace and love toward others. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for your mercy that is new every morning. And we confess that if you should mark iniquities, none of us could stand. And so we pray, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, stir in us to be a community of people, a community together and as individuals who are marked by self-forgetfulness, who serve others. Let us be like Christ in that way. Lord, in your mercy, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.